Thank you, Adam and Tricia. I uh, hope you all are singing along with them. That's the idea. Uh, we're not here just to entertain. We're here to uh, lead you in worship. So we hope you're doing that together at home uh, or wherever you are. Um, last week, I was uh, looking uh, on the Internet and reading news, and I ran across a really interesting picture. It was a picture of a priest in and I believe it was Bolivia, but it might have been Brazil, who actually took his congregation and put pictures of them on the backs of all his pews. So while he did the Mass, he could look at his congregation. So that's one of the things that we really miss around here. I'm looking around at empty chairs. There's only four people out there uh, looking back at me, and we really miss you. It's not quite the same, but um, we're glad we can be with you, and we hope uh, you're enjoying our worship experience together. As you know, we're on a series uh, concerning the Lord's Prayer, and each week we're taking a different phrase from the Lord's Prayer and trying to understand what's behind it, the details of it, and things that we can learn. I, I'd like to ask you this question. Have you ever read a book? And you're following along in the book. Maybe it's a book um, that's a thesis, or maybe it's even just a book that's a story. And you're following that book, and the author's got you. In other words, you're following along in the book, and you're saying, yes, yes, I agree, I agree. And then all of a sudden, somewhere in the book, you stop, and you say, now wait a minute. Come on. Really? I would imagine that there are times when you've prayed the Lord's Prayer that you've run up against that dilemma. You've said to yourself, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. How appropriate. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. I can certainly agree. Give us this day our daily bread. I need that. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That's hard, but I need to hear it. And then this phrase. Don't lead us into temptation. Maybe that's the point. Like when you're reading your book, you stop and you say, now wait a minute. I can't follow that one. First, it just seems wrong. And second, even if it didn't seem wrong, I'm not sure I understand it. That's been a dilemma that the church has had since the beginning. It's not entirely new, but I think it is relatively new in terms of our understanding of what the prayer means. Because in any given context, the meaning is more clear. And we're going to do our best to unpack that context. It might seem odd, it might seem contradictory, it might seem like a huge dilemma. That dilemma, as a matter of fact, you may know recently, um, the Pope came out with a dictate concerning the Lord's Prayer, and he said, we're going to change the language. We're going to change the language of the Lord's Prayer not to use the words, lead us not into temptation. Now, of course, you know that's a big deal because the Catholic Church doesn't change anything very often. It took them over a thousand years 
to change from Latin to other languages in the Mass. The Pope is struggling with the issue on behalf of his parishioners, and we also struggle with it. In order for us to understand that passage, I think it's important for us to consider some things that are stumbling blocks. If you think about this phrase, you might say to yourself, that sounds like a capricious father. The kind of person who is a good father wouldn't lead his children into temptation, would it? Would he? Or you might say, it sounds like it contradicts other passages of Scripture, like James 1.12. God can't be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. You might also say, well, perhaps there's something to this, because in the book of Matthew, chapter 4, Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan. That creates another level of dilemma, doesn't it? How did God have anything to do with temptation on that occasion? Several things to remember about that particular occasion. First, Jesus was tempted on our behalf. In other words, he was led into the desert in order to be tempted just as we would be tempted and have been tempted so that he could be our great high priest. The second thing that's important to remember concerning this is that in Jesus Christ, when he was in the desert, it was not the nature of God that was tempted. Remember, Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. So the temptation in that desert related to his human nature. There's also something else really important to remember. God didn't tempt him. God allowed Satan to tempt him. Now, also to understand this uh, phrase that is so troubling to us, it's probably important to consider the word temptation or tempt. Because in our Bible, we see, lead us not into temptation. And we see the word tempt or temptation or variety of other places in the Old and in the New Testament. For instance, if you're looking at the old King James Version, you're going to see a phrase that says that God tempted Abraham. What was that temptation about? It was the temptation to sacrifice Isaac. Later translations of that have used a different word. And I think the word is appropriate. They've used the word test. In other words, they say God tested Abraham by asking him to sacrifice his son Isaac. The word test, which is equally reliable in the translation, I think helps us to understand something. When God allows tests or temptations to enter our life, it's not for the purpose of making us fail. It's for the purpose of strengthening us. It's actually in our best interest that we are tested. So it's perfectly appropriate to use the word test to understand this passage. An ancient Christian theologian and writer, his name was Tertullian, reflecting on God and Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac, he said, God ordered Abraham to sacrifice his son 
not to tempt his faith, but to prove it. The second word, apart from temptation or test that's important, is the word temptation and evil. It could be neuter or it could be masculine. And some of our more contemporary translations actually use the words evil one rather than just evil. And that too, I believe, is very appropriate. Because the evil one is the one who's introduced into the human condition in Genesis chapter 3. And the evil one is spoken of over and over again in the scriptures throughout. There's an occasion which I often refer to when I think of temptation and the Gospels, and in particular, Peter. On one occasion, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, Satan, not some ominous evil that doesn't have a name, but Satan himself wants to sift you like wheat. But Peter, I have prayed for you. And when you have walked through it, those are my words, I want you to turn back to your brothers and encourage them. Peter, you're about ready to face some trials. You're going to be tested. And Satan wants that test to destroy you. But I'm not going to allow it to happen because I prayed for you. And I want you to turn back and encourage your brothers. It's no doubt that Satan is our adversary. There is no doubt that Satan wants to destroy us. And there's a sense in which Satan's real enemy is not us. We're collateral damage. Satan's real enemy is God. Satan wants to turn every test into a temptation that creates failure. So what are the possible meanings uh, for this phrase, which often is so troublesome to us? One possibility is it could simply be this. Lord, please don't te tempt me. Lord, please don't test me. Or perhaps one could translate it this way. Please do not initiate temptation in my life, Lord. Those two words... And those two phrases align themselves with the word temptation, right? But if you use the word test instead of temptation, the temptation that is only a test, you might come up with a phrase like this. Lord, don't let me be tested above my ability to endure it. Or it may be something like this. Lord, I know that difficulty and testing lie ahead for me. But don't let me fail. That seems so realistic, doesn't it? It's at this point that I think linguistics or word studies are not enough. I think in order to understand Jesus' prayer that he taught us to pray, we have to remember the life of Jesus and the life of the disciples. 
Here's the context of Jesus' life. When he utters these words, he's looking backwards towards a time where he was put through the test. But he also is looking forward to events that have not yet transpired. He teaches this prayer to his disciples, and he's looking forward to the Garden of Gethsemane, where in that garden he's going to say to his father, Father, please, please let this cup pass from me. But if not, your will be done. He's looking forward to the cross, where on the cross he's about to die and he suffered excruciating pain and the weight of sin and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you think of the context of Jesus' of life and ministry, it brings clarity to this phrase in the prayer. Or think about the context that is ahead of him and ahead of those disciples, he knows they're going to face persecution. And he says, as Dan read to us from John chapter 17, Lord, I don't want you to take them out of the world, but I want you to protect them from the evil one. In other words, Lord, let them go through the test. But don't let them fail. Instead, Lord, sanctify them through your truth, your word. Sanctify them. I want to also suggest something else. It might sound outrageous, but this phrase is not meant to be understood. It's meant to be prayed. In other words, Jesus is asking us to be honest in our prayer. He's asking us to cry out to our Father. Even if we don't believe our Father is going to tempt us, God, don't let me be tested. God, please don't let me be tempted. Lord, don't do it. Because I want to follow you. This is a prayer of humility, not self-sufficiency. Peter was self-sufficient before he denied his Lord. He was humble after he recognized his sin. Let me say this, may I? The most dangerous people in the world are those who are self-righteous and self-sufficient. If you believe you're okay, if you don't believe you need the Word of God deep within you, if you think just going to church whenever you have an opportunity is enough, my friends, you're in a dangerous place. Because God calls us to be honestly humble and not self-sufficient. There's another thing that's wonderful about the message of temptation in the Scripture. It comes from 1 Corinthians 10.13. In that epistle, Paul says, Jesus went through every single temptation 
And he didn't mean by that every exact situation. He meant he was tempted in every way just like us. And yet without sin. So we can go to Jesus. Later, the book of Hebrews describes the same thing. Our high priest who understands went through temptation but did not fail. Galatians 6, 1 reminds us that we've all sinned. And because we have all sinned, we need to remember that humble restoration should be a part of our life. In the book of Galatians, Paul is essentially saying, your brother's going to sin. Your sister's going to sin. Just like you have. So you, who are humble, restore that one. It's going to happen. Hebrews 4.15 is a wonderful passage. I actually want to read it to you. 4.14 and following. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold firm to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest that's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So let us then approach God's throne of mercy and grace that we may find mercy and grace in our time of need. I want to ask a question. What's your situation? Have you struggled with temptation and you failed? Don't despair. It means you're human. If you struggled with temptation and failed, don't despair. Because there's forgiveness. Do you feel on any number of occasions that you're just too sinful? You've done too much wrong. And maybe it's too late. Don't despair. Remember the story of the thief on the cross. God has a heart of forgiveness, and it's perfectly expressed in Jesus Christ. The last song that Tricia and Adam sang had a phrase in it that I thought very appropriate to this topic. When you speak, speaking about God, Let's put it in the context of our sin and our forgiveness. Lord, when you speak, a hundred billion failures disappear. Why? Because God is a God of forgiveness. Will you pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we could thank you for so many things. But right now, and perhaps always, 
the thing we thank you the most for is the grace of forgiveness. We would be hopeless without it, but we are saints with it. May we claim that forgiveness and walk as saints, Christ followers in this present world. In your name we pray. Amen.